2: Hello, I'm Tilly Berlin and I'm here to welcome you to the first Diffusion for 2007. Yes, we've made it to another year, you've made it to another year, and in celebration we have the best half hour of science anyone could ask for. A little later we'll be looking into human evolution, the wonders of retro causality, and it wouldn't be Diffusion without a story about some bodily fluids. But right now, settle back and listen to the dulcet tones of Ian Wolfe with all the latest science news.
1: Spectrolab in the USA have achieved a new world record in solar cell efficiency. Using concentrated sunlight from mirrors or lenses, Spectrolab's photovoltaic cell can convert 40.7% of the sun's energy into electricity even at temperatures high enough to melt steel. Dr David Lillington explained that the new solar cells are based on the same technology as their space-based cells on satellites, so they can be mass-produced quite quickly. In multi-junction systems, there are several layers of semiconductors converting electricity instead of just one layer. The different layers, as well as catching light that the first layer missed, can absorb light of different colours to the other layers. With concentrated sunlight from mirrors or lenses, fewer solar cells are required to achieve the same power output, which makes them cheaper. This technology will continue to dramatically reduce the cost of generating electricity from solar energy, as well as the cost of materials used in high power, space satellites and on the Earth. They think they can increase the conversion efficiency even higher. How are we going to store all this power? Electrochemist Peter Bruce of the University of St Andrews in Scotland thinks his experimental lithium-ion battery that combines with oxygen to form lithium peroxide could give more than four times the current capacity of batteries currently used in phones, media players and Tesla cars. Based on his experiments, Bruce says that such batteries could store as much as 600 to 700 milliamp hours per gram. So four times that of lithium-ion batteries, but for the same weight, while maintaining the ability to be recharged as quickly, and to keep working for as long a lifetime. These could make practical electric cars much cheaper. A new anti-AIDS condom for women has been developed at the University of Utah. The molecular condom starts as a fluid substance to be inserted by a woman vaginally becomes a gel at body temperature and at the vaginal fluid acidity. Then, in the presence of sperm alkalinity, it becomes liquid again to release an antiviral drug load to block infection by the AIDS virus. The liquid turns into a gel that coats the inside of the vagina. Patrick Kaiser, an assistant professor of bioengineering, says his ultimate hope for this technology is to protect women and their unborn or nursing children from the AIDS virus. The molecular condom is a polymer, a molecule with a repeating chain-like structure made from three chemicals. The three together have the property of liquid at room temperature and vaginal acidity, solid at body temperature and vaginal acidity at 4.5 pH, and liquid at body temperature and semen acidity at pH of 7.7. They call their invention smart, semen-triggered, vaginal, microbicidal vehicles. The researchers demonstrated how the polymer could change from liquid to gel at body temperature, then return to liquid form when exposed to simulated seminal fluid. A sticky mixture of sugars and salt and release large and small molecule used as stand-ins for real medicines in drug delivery experiments. In the experiments, where the hydrogel molecular condom was exposed to mock seminal fluid, it released half of the small molecule drug within five minutes, and most of it within an hour. It released half of the large molecule drug within 30 minutes. The experiments were designed to make it difficult for the molecular condom to release simulated drugs, because inside a woman, the gel would be much thinner than in the lab tests, so antiviral drugs would all be released in just a few minutes. Kaiser hopes to incorporate experimental anti-AIDS drugs, known as entry inhibitors, into the molecular condom. The molecular condom is five years away from tests in humans, and roughly 10 years until it might be in widespread use.
2: Humans are undoubtedly still changing. Culturally, technologically, intellectually and emotionally, humans have always been evolving. But are we still biologically evolving? Or have our cultural, technological, intellectual and emotional advances stopped genetic selection and biological evolution? Mark West reports.
3: Early Homo sapiens could not possibly have envisaged the world in which modern-day humans live or our amazing technological capabilities, but have our changes had anything to do with genetics or simply our developing culture? It is arguable that we are no longer at the mercy of natural selection. We are now born into an environment that is largely of our own making. Thousands of generations before us have helped craft a habitat in which genetic selection is largely unnecessary for our survival. No longer are only the healthy or rich breeding or the strong surviving. Babies with genetic mutations now survive childbirth, and those of us who can't chase down wild animals can buy food from the local supermarket. Reproductive technology has allowed many more people to breed than in the past. There is even an argument that we are causing reverse evolution. Technology and medicine enables almost everyone to have children, preventing unfit genes from being purged from the gene pool. Relaxed selection, combined with a high mutation rate, is probably causing a gradual deterioration of many functions, especially disease defences, Gregory Cochran, adjunct professor of anthropology at the University of Utah, told New Scientist. With this in mind, however, we need to take a look at the 2005 discovery of two genes by Bruce Lahn of the University of Chicago, one of which may have emerged as recently as 14,000 years ago and is now carried by 70% of the world's population. The other may be as recent as 500 years ago and is carried by 25% of the world's population. Another example of recent genetic selection is in some parts of Africa where there has been an increase in the frequency of a gene which offers some protection against HIV-1. And another very interesting example is the increase of the dopamine receptor gene DRD4. It is interesting because it is associated with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, and somehow this has been selected for. So it would seem that there are still genetic changes that are being selected for occurring within the species. These are very interesting findings as racial and ethnic groups diverged somewhere between 50 and 100,000 years ago meaning that various groups across the planet may differ genetically to various degrees. This could be a massive political issue if different world races were not biologically equal, but one would hope we are culturally evolved enough to deal with it. But none of this should be much of a surprise. Our era is one of rapid technological process, and hence a fast-changing environment, and this is exactly the conditions under which natural selection should thrive. For example, the invention of dairy herding selected for a gene that gives adults the ability to digest milk sugars. These days, however, we are seeing more and more that human technology and culture help humans adapt, where to adapt in the traditional genetic fashion would take hundreds or thousands of generations. And with the ability of technology to deal with our troubles rapidly increasing, this will be an escalating effect in the future. Given all this, where are we going to end up? Christopher Wills of the University of California, San Diego, argues that our culture is the driving force in human evolution and has been driving the rapid evolution of the human mind. It began when the brains of our ancestors, as opposed to their physical attributes, allowed them to succeed. And now, Wills argues that in the modern world, no one can do everything. So the advantage lies in being good at something that not many others can do well. My prediction is that we are not simply getting smarter... We are selecting for more variability in our behaviours, he told New Scientist. This is an interesting theory, as it means our culture is selecting for more variability within our gene pool, with all this pushing towards higher intelligence. Whilst Cochrane thinks that we may be breeding out immunity to disease, he also thinks that we may be selecting for intelligence. He recently published a paper claiming that natural selection has genetically increased the intelligence of the Ashkenazi Jews in the past 1,000 years as they were forbidden to work in manual trades and had to make money in more cerebral activities. And this is published in the Journal of Biosocial Science, volume 37. Perhaps he thinks that our higher intelligence, combined with advances in technology, will more than make up for our increased vulnerability to disease. We should also not forget the role of sexual selection in evolution, that is, how we choose our mates. And we have not yet even dealt with the role of computing and artificial intelligence in evolution. With our concepts of what we mean by free will and consciousness racing to keep up with developments in artificial intelligence, this is one area that could completely change our concept of evolution and what drives it. There will be a time when we start genetically changing ourselves and incorporating technology into our bodies. There may be a time when we create artificially intelligent robots, and indeed, we may well change other animals to have some form of intellect. Our environment will be entirely of our own making. Evolution will always exist, indeed probably progressing at such a pace in the future that we cannot imagine it at the moment. But undoubtedly, natural selection as driven by traditional means will not exist.
2: That was Mark West, a mostly evolved individual. And that was Supergrass, coffee in the pot. Now, we're all quite happy with the idea that the past affects the future. The spicy burrito I had for dinner last night can influence the functioning of my digestive tract today, to pick one just random example. But turn that around and ask whether the future can influence the past. Whether, say, your dodgy chat up line in the pub tonight can send a temporal influence to upset your confidence in yesterday's board meeting. Suddenly, people start calling you a wacko. Diffusion's occasional Canberra correspondent, Tim Baines, isn't afraid of being called a wacko. Tim's up next with a story about the weird world of quantum reality and retrocausality.
4: Something of a bit of a revelation and the front cover of New Scientist uh, was a story about retrocausality. What's done is done, right? Hmm, maybe not if you're a tiny little quantum particle. And a bit of an explanation of that is coming up right now. Most of the stuff uh, you see around uh, sorry, around you, most science, can be explained with a, a certain kind of understanding, a logic that fits well in with our sense of reason and analogies in our everyday lives and experiences. Quantum mechanics, it seems, doesn't want to play ball. Einstein didn't like it, Schrodinger didn't like it. it, didn't like the way it dealt with uncertainties rather than certainties, even though he invented the wave equation, and Feynman suggested that no one really understood it unless it really disturbed them. Now... At a recent uh, meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, yet another brain-twisting property of tiny particles has been suggested in an experiment proposed by John Kramer. The idea is to show whether the past lives of particles depended on their present or future. And I did say that right. The future affecting the past. This is another can of theoretical worms called retrocausality. Time travelling in quantum mechanics is not as new as you might think. Feynman demonstrated that you could look at an antiparticle as if it was a particle, just travelling backwards through time. And he and John Wheeler developed a whole theory of how electromagnetic waves could move forwards or backwards in time. The new idea is that this happens between entangled pairs of particles and that you can catch them in the act of communicating backwards in time. The new experiment hinges on two key phenomena in quantum mechanics – entanglement and wave-particle duality. So here goes for a quick explanation of them. First, entanglement. Certain particles are born at the same time. They're twins. But being fundamental components of the universe, they have to abide by certain rules like conservation of mass and energy. And in quantum mechanics, there's also conservation of spin. Won't tell you any more about that, just that's what it's got to be, all right? One twin will be spin up and one spin down. The point about entanglement is that both particles are in an undetermined state until you observe them. You just can't know which one is which until you observe them. That's just what they are. And the moment you definitely see the properties of one, then the possibilities for the other collapse into being the opposite. The idea that this happens instantaneously, no matter where the particles are in the universe, is what really got up Einstein's nose, because it seemed to completely ignore the restrictions on the speed of light. Instantaneous information transfer... What John Cramer is proposing with retro causality goes even further and says not only can this happen instantaneously, but it can occur backwards through time. The other quantum phenomena you need to know about is wave-particle duality. Sounds impressive, huh? Well, this is where particles can apparently have wave-like properties, wave-like phenomena, and vice versa. Waves, wave energy like light, has particle-like properties. The classic example of this is light, which exhibits wave-like effects such as diffraction and interference, but it can also be described with photons, particles of light energy. The classic experiment to test this is uh, where you allow light to be shone through a barrier with just two holes where the light can get through. The pattern you'd see on the other side would show very wave-like properties of interference. There would be light and dark areas where the waves of light interfered constructively or destructively. What quantum mechanics experiments have shown is that if you just allowed one photon of light at a time through this setup, you still see the interference. But if you observe the photon of light just as it passes through either of the two holes, then you don't observe the interference. You observe it as a particle and stops acting like a wave, and you don't see the interference pattern. Now, I can see this is hurting some people's brains, and that's entirely fair. Wave particle duality is something I, you just, there isn't an intuitive thing for it, I don't think. But anyway. That's wave-particle duality. So, to retro-causality. The experiment they want to do goes like this. A laser shines on a special crystal which produces a pair of photons, those entangled particles, entangled twins. Each photon of light heads off on its merry way, but before they go too far, they meet this, this experiment with the barrier with two holes. All right. Now, you would say that both photons will pass through the holes in each of their respective barriers and do the whole wave-like interference thing, unless you happen to spy on one of them. Then you'd notice it was a particle, see that it had a certain mass and spin and whatever, and therefore you'd know the properties of the other one simultaneously. But here's the tricky bit with this setup. One photon is allowed to go through, through the barrier of the two holes unnoticed, until it's projected onto a screen, but the other is directed down several kilometres of optic fibre, so you can't observe it until later. The $64 million question is, will you be able to look at the later photon and change the way the first behaved on the projection screen? Could you change it from producing interference patterns like a wave to just piling up like a whole bunch of particles, like particles? Now, like many things uh, that happen... On the quantum scale, it's pretty unlikely the results of this will actually mean anything anything for us up here on the big scale of real life. In fact, personally, I mean this this experiment uh, is a bit open. The theory doesn't have much to say on this, except that some string theories uh, actually would be helped by things like retro causality. But one possibility is that uh, seeing the first photon that hits the screen, uh, uh, notice that is an observation, and therefore it will determine what happens to the photon coming through the kilometres of optic fibre and so uh, retrocausality doesn't happen. We don't know. It's an interesting experiment. It's open. But uh, it's an interesting thought that perhaps we could uh, maybe derive a technology from this and, I don't know, reverse a few of those fatal faux pas of our lives.
2: That was Tim Baines, Diffusion's Canberra correspondent, on The Strange Temporality of Quantum Physics. I certainly have a few faux pas to fix if anyone needs a willing subject.
3: On
2: According to researchers from the Australian National University, promiscuous females are more likely to give birth to healthier offspring. These findings were published in the journal Nature last month. Diffusion's Darren Osborne spoke to one of the researchers, Dr Diana Fisher, to discover why female promiscuity exists in the animal kingdom and whether there is anything in it for humans.
0: First of all, can you tell me, what do you mean by sperm competition?
5: Well, uh, in this animal, and, and in, in quite a few animals probably, the females mate with lots of different males in the one estrous cycle. So that means that there's sperm from all different males in the female at the same time, and that means they can compete for fertilisations.
0: Is this common in the animal kingdom, that females will mate with multiple males?
5: Yeah, it's really common. Even a few years ago, people... I uh, didn't realize how common it was and and they just assumed that a lot of animals are naturally monogamous or females. You wouldn't understand why females would go out and mate with all different males because obviously they only really, you'd think, only need one male to fertilize their eggs. But actually about 15 years ago, people started doing a lot of genetic studies of wild animals or it became much easier to do that. And they realised, doing paternity testing on wild animals, that females of just about every species mate with lots of males.
0: Okay, so it kind of puts humans in the minority then?
5: Well, humans are sort of moderate Apparently, it's it's quite hard to do good studies on human sexual behaviour but it seems um, from the evidence that we've got is that humans are not particularly promiscuous compared to other animals, they're not not totally monogamous obviously, we're sort of in the middle.
0: This breakthrough in in understanding sperm competition uh, has come through in some research that you've done on a particular Australian animal. Can you tell us about the animal and why you chose that particular species?
5: Well, I worked on a brown antichinus, and that's that's a small marsupial that's related to Tasmanian devils, so it's a, it's a little carnivorous kind of marsupial, and they're very, very common. That's one reason to choose them, even though not many people have heard of them or, or know about them, because they live in forests, and they live up, up trees, they nest up trees in the daytime, they come out at night, and they are very small and inconspicuous. The thing about them, too, is they have a very bizarre um, mating system and life history, which means the male's all die after they mate um, for one season. They just have a like, one, two-week mating season, and when they're 11 and a half months old, all the males die. And the females don't all die at once, but they, because they're little little animals, they don't tend to live a really long time. A lot of females don't breed a second time. They just don't survive that long. And also, they, they have a lot of babies at once. They just breed to once. The females have in this species they have eight babies in the pouch, and they just raise them, and that's usually it.
0: So what was it that you found from um, tests on, on this particular animal?
5: What we did was we mated um, some females with three males and some with one male three three different times, so they should have got the same amount of sperm. And we looked at the baby survival and we found that the, the females that mated with more different males had much higher baby survival, like three times as high as the females that mated with only the single male.
0: Were you able to determine of those that didn't survive the reasons why?
5: Well, no, this is this is a bit of a confusing thing about it. We don't know the exact mechanism of why they didn't survive. We just know that when it was, which was in just about the time when they become weaned, just before that, when they leave their mothers. And at that stage, they're putting their mothers under a lot of stress. They're drinking the maximum amount of milk and they're facing all sorts of dangers. So if there's any crunch time in a little marsupial's life, that's, that's what it is. I suppose it's in some ways not that surprising that it was then that they failed to make it. But um, we don't know the exact mechanism. But we did, we could work out though that the males that were better competitors, that that fired more of the female's offspring, when we looked at the paternity analysis with DNA fingerprinting, those ones were the ones whose babies survived. So that so that supports the idea that the more competitive sperm um, have more healthy babies that survive.
0: Is there any way in which you can do tests on the actual sperm from these animals to see that there is a difference that is obvious or is it is it still too complex?
5: That was sort of beyond the scope of what we could do and it's pretty hard actually to do that on they have They have very unusual male reproduction in lots of ways. They have very big sperm that they don't produce very many of and they store it so the females mate with several males and then they wait two weeks before they ovulate so they're storing all this sperm from different males and they may, it may be something to do with that some of the males sperm survive better or something not necessarily that some of them are faster or whatever but we don't know what it is.
0: And I suppose the obvious question is does this sort of um, outcome extend into the human species do you think?
5: hard to be conclusive but it probably doesn't seem very likely because humans really get a lot more from males than just the genes or just the sperm any of is all the males die straight after they, they mate so the females are really only after their genes but in our case obviously you get a lot more from the father like care of the offspring and all sorts of other things so female humans are more interested in a lot of other qualities and also we obviously do make choice before mating rather than leaving it um, till afterwards
2: That was Dr Diana Fisher from the Australian National University talking to Darren Osborne about the sex life of the brown anti It's the
0: sound of science. The sound of
2: science. And here we are for the first news that didn't quite make the news for 2007. Jackie, would you like to kick us off with a summary of science of last year?
4: 2006 brought a whole bunch of stuff that I don't think anyone really would have predicted at the beginning of 2006. For example, Pluto got demoted from a planet to a planetoid. Uh, Global warming became huge in Australia because of the drought and because of running out of water. So we're just going to go around. We're all going to make some predictions about what we think will happen in 2007. So I'm going to start it off with something quite boring. I think that... Australia will find a really good way of recycling water and that it will come into practice in at least one state in a big way. Luck.
0: I reckon they're going to uh, film a giant squid uh, alive and in the wild, Jack. And wow. I think that they're finally going to get Criticam working, they're going to get some sort of submersible down there or whatever, and they're going to get proper pictures of a, a giant squid swimming alive, not just dead and washed up on a beach.
5: I think that's a great prediction. Well, sticking with the water theme... Um, because I love scuba diving, I think they're going to find something amazing under the sea, such as a white zebra shark, really, really long, that nobody's seen before. How long? Ah, 10 (laughs) metres. Okay.
1: Keeping on the biological theme, I think they're going to find some very strongly suggestive evidence of life on Mars, but they won't confirm
3: anything. Yes, Ian, you've kind of stolen mine. See, I I thought that in 2006 they discovered water on Mars... They, we also went to Titan and discovered an amazing uh, system with clouds and methane and ethane gas, which is kind of like uh, a deep frozen version of Earth. Yeah, it I has a
5: whole like organic haze going in the atmosphere. That's there. right. So yeah. I
3: actually think uh, Titan is probably the more likely spot to find some amazing, perhaps life precursor.
2: Well, regardless of where you think the next sign of life or pre-life is coming from, the first edition of Diffusion for 2007 is coming to an end. We've had a great time talking about science this week, and we hope you've had a good time listening. If you want to contact the Diffusion team about any stories from today, if you want a signed publicity photo of one of us, or if you just need to practice your typing, you can email us at diffusion at 2 to download any of our shows since the dawn of time, just log on to our website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Tilly Blinn and I've produced today's show, which has had fantastic tidbits from Darren Osborne, Mark West, Tim Baines, Lachlan Walkmore, Catherine Beehag, Ian Wolfe and the lovely Jackie Hayes, who stepped up to the mark with technical assistance. This is Milo versus Gloria Estefan with Dr Pressure. Welcome to 2007. We'll meet you back here same time next week for another week of Diffusion.